and welcome to this week's uh, VFX show. I'm Mike Seymour, episode number 136, uh, Anonymous. And uh, not so anonymous are my two uh, co-hosts, starting with uh, Matt Leonard. How are you, Matt? Very well, thank you. Very well. So you are coming to us from the, uh, the Greater Britain, I believe. I am indeed, yes. Though I hear you may be possibly off to Europe, but we luckily caught you between, uh, between trips. <laughs> yes, which is great, which is great. So very pleased to be here. And uh, Mark Christensen, who, Mark, I'm sorry I didn't see you when I was in uh, California last week, but uh, I had a killer schedule, but my apologies. Yeah, I might have been down in LA anyway. No worries. Yeah, we, um, we were crazy busy. Um, and in fact, one of the people that we went uh, to see were the guys at Uncharted Territory. And uh, of course, they are the visual effects uh, team behind Anonymous, which we're talking about this week. So we'll come to the visual effects in one second, as we always do. What we wanted to start discussing is... Um, of course, firstly, what you guys thought of the film. We'll get to the visual effects. And then one of the things I wanted to explore this week is uh, whether or not this film looks filmic, given that it was shot on the Alexa. In fact, it was the first major film shot on the Alexa. And more to the point, is filmic uh, a concept that's quickly dating because the generations have moved on and, and all those things we used to cling to are kind of getting a bit uh, passe, like, oh, I don't know, film grain. But first, let's start, uh, if I could, Mark, with your opinion on the film. What do you think of it? I like this film a lot. I was really entertained by it. Uh, I have never had a chance to mention this in uh, a VFX context whatsoever, but uh, I am familiar with this story from quite a while back, but not as far back as when I was studying literature. Um, So when I was at Cambridge and my own American college, Pomona, this never came up. I studied Shakespeare at Cambridge. Never came up that... Um, there was really a debate about whether Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare, even though there was this strange lack of information uh, about this author in a time when uh, literary criticism was really interested in everything about authors. So uh, fast forward, uh, I, when I heard about this at first in the late 90s, I was really fascinated by this 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 argument and what I think is great about this film is that it it raises the stakes in a way that uh Roland Emmerich would do <laughs> and I actually think he's the perfect guy to to direct this because it could have been more of a who done it more of a kind of a boring nerdy exercise in uh dredging up historical information when in fact he uh, and his screenwriter managed to tie this together into a really pretty compelling drama. So it's a sleeper. I think there are probably a lot of people listening who haven't even seen it because the box office hasn't been that splendid, but I thought it was a good one. Well, in fairness, it actually was rolling out. It started in LA and I think East and West Coast and and is sort of rolling out. Um, But uh, interestingly, I studied... um, I, I. really didn't have a a strong English literature background. Uh, Most of my study was, as you might have guessed, uh, maths uh, and pure maths at that. But I did actually have a huge interest in Shakespeare also when I was at uh, school. And um, I was at a all-boys boarding school. And one of the few ways that we could get out to the outside world is if you could convince your parents to sign up for the the theatre appreciation thing, which meant that they would get a bus and they'd bus us off to plays about once every fortnight. And as this was the only chance to get out of boarding school, I signed up in spades. And so I ended up going through school actually seeing 
a remarkable amount of uh, Bill Shakespeare productions of the um, of Shakespeare's plays, and and actually, the reason I mention this is we did completely have uh, on our radar the idea of uh, Shakespeare not being Shakespeare. It was discussed uh, with my teachers. Um, there were various theories. Uh, we would discredit some of them. Um, there was a Bacon theory that he wrote them. There was a bunch of theories. So I was quite aware of that even as a kid, way before I even became interested in film. So I'm really surprised it didn't come up for you if you were studying in England. Well, I, I, should, I should clarify that. There is actually a long string of people who've questioned this. One of the best diatribes about it was written by Mark Twain. It's a really funny um, set of essays that he wrote about this. So I think I may be misstated to say that it didn't come up. What didn't come up was this case for this guy, oh, I see. Edward DeVere, who ha- there's a remarkable set of information. So put aside everything in this movie that was added to it. I mean, he had a relationship with Queen Elizabeth, but I don't think it was quite the relationship that existed in this movie. Uh, same with Southampton, who um, probably wasn't his actual son, although I think was his potential son-in-law. But you see, that, that type of information isn't really going to go into making a movie entertaining. So mm-hmm. I think that <laughs> it's, it's really an odd thing for me that I was familiar now with this argument um, from more recently and really compelled by it. And I was a little afraid that the whole Emmerich approach was going to just um, do for it kind of what Day After Tomorrow did for Global Warming, which is kind of to turn it into a, a popcorn movie. So uh, I, I, I really think actually that uh, it did in the, in the good sense what Day After Tomorrow did, which was make what could be kind of a turgid subject into a really pretty entertaining one. Well, that's the opinion of an American and Australian, but an Englishman, uh, true and stout. What, what, did you, what did you think? Well, I'm slightly ashamed to say that I never studied Shakespeare, and uh, I probably should have done. I think I was probably sneaking out of English to uh, do sculpting when I was at school. So my, uh, my kind of background in Shakespeare was extremely limited, and it sounds like both of you know much more about it than I did. So when I first saw this movie come up, I wasn't actually that interested. Now, I did actually end up seeing it twice, um, mainly because I wanted to uh, look at the effects again and and get a sense as to what they had done. But I definitely found it quite confusing, the first viewing I had of it. But viewing it a second time, it made a lot more sense, and and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a great movie, uh, visually, um, from a cinema, cinematography point of view, and obviously from uh, an effects point of view, uh, quite stunning in, in a number of ways. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the cinematography there. I had a chance yesterday to talk to Anna, who's the DOP from the production, um, and that interview is going to be in the RC podcast that will be out the same time this podcast is out. Uh, so if you go over to uh, RC101, um, we just uh, have that uh, interview with Anna discussing the lighting and, and how she did this. Um, and interestingly, Anna has a very strong visual effects background. So she actually helmed this one as her first full production where she was the lead DOP, though she has done... Uh, second unit and miniatures work on films that are so large that I would actually say the budget for her second unit work was bigger than the budget for the entire film here (laughs) with Anonymous. So it's a bit of a misnomer to imply that she's sort of a a new DOP. Uh, I think she's incredibly talented. And not only that, but I think that 
um, the technique, which um, we, we explore a lot, so I won't go over it again, but the, the technique that she uh, used here, especially for the, a lot of the interiors, is to really smoke up the environment of the room and then in DI, basically reintroduce all the contrast again. Now, she was, as she explains in the podcast, she didn't backlight the, uh, the smoke. So because if you don't backlight the smoke, it doesn't light up in that sort of shafts of light sense. And then when you take it down in the DI, what you get basically is a, uh, a diffusion of light, especially from these candles, the diffusion of light between the candle source and the lens rather than putting a diffuser on the lens and this gives the images um, a creaminess which she specifically uh, designed and uh, worked for and referred to Vermeer's uh, paintings. You guys, you must be familiar with the, um, uh, is it Johannes Vermeer, the Dutch uh, 17th century um, painter? Uh, His work is just exquisite. You guys know his work yeah, yeah definitely yeah and yeah and that quality of light uh is exactly what she was going for and mark i think she i think she nailed it yeah i was also reminded of spanish paintings from that era yes i absolutely agree so it's great to have a dop that's this comfortable with visual effects work but also willing to um uh, push the craft pretty hard and she's introduced this lovely creaminess to the interiors what's of course really interesting is that an enormous amount of stuff from a i guess you know budget of this size film is done as green screen um and let's let's uh focus that on, on that now and obviously the dop stuff you guys are willing to explore um uh elsewhere and but i think that the visual effects in the film do a couple of things. Firstly, it gave it a really huge production value. And so it had me at the trailer. I saw the trailer, I got up from my desk, immediately walked over to Ian in our office and I was like, man, we've just got to do a story on the effects for this is awesome. But at that stage, I assumed the budget was much larger than it was. But but Matt, it wasn't a very big budget film, really, was it? No, I heard in, uh, in an interview uh, that Roland did with... Uh I'm trying to think who it was. It may have been KCRW, the business. Um, mm, great interview. interview. I think, yeah, I think he says it was something like 23 million. Yeah. 23, 22 million. Um, and originally it was going to be a much higher budget and they just couldn't get it made for that. But through a lot of kind of clever techniques that we'll probably talk about, he managed to get the budget right down. And uh, it doesn't appear to me when you look at it to be a $23 million movie. It appears to be much higher budget. So he's really... Uh, made the money sing on screen that's for sure yeah and so this uh this team at uncharted territory uh which uh did the film went over to germany where they were shooting and then obviously finished the effects uh both in germany and in in la and those are the guys you met up with and they're on fx guide uh, tv as we also have the breakdowns for the film um but Mark, did you uh, do you want to just discuss your sort of overall impression of the visual effects? I mean, let's let's ignore the budget, yeah. though. I do think it's impressive at the budget. But just to remember, straight out. Actually, I, I think we have to talk about the budget not as a number, but as the key takeaway from a VFX and filmmaking standpoint, um, because this opens the door to a whole different kind of movie that really, up until recently, hasn't existed. First of all, the thirty million dollar movie has been a kind of a rare creature until around the time of, say, Cloverfield, which similarly was very clever about using VFX to get a film done cheaply. So, you know, Roland Emmerich's gone on record saying that he thinks this is the first case where VFX saved money on a film. I don't think that's true. But VFX actually saved this film. It was shelved and came back kind of from the dead because they figured out how to do it without spending 
you know, upwards of a hundred million to uh, get these period exteriors and, and interiors. So I, I think that we could see a lot more historical films like this, which I think is great. Uh, I would like that. Well, one of the other films, I totally agree with you. Uh, I guess I was interested to get your opinion before we overlaid the mention yeah, of yeah. the money. But, but, no, <laughs> Sorry. But, why, no, but why you brought it up, I think it's a really good point. Because another film that we did a story on um, that will be coming out in the new year is um, Red Tails. Now, I can't discuss that film right now. But it is, um, uh, you know, it is out there in terms of uh, everyone knows that it's been made. And that's a similar kind of budget. It's not exactly the same, but there there are quite a few films that are hitting it at uh, the 30 million. And in the case of Red Tails, yeah. in the case of this, they're... District 9, another one. There you go, yeah. And they involve effects, not just as kind of a... You wouldn't know they were there, but they're central to being able to pull it off. I mean, you can't have a, a dogfight. You can't have, you know... Uh, a Tudor England under snow and you can't have, you know, alien spaceships and, and creatures um, without the visual effect. And they're just really central to what's going on. And yeah, I mean, at $30 million, I've got to say, I, I was in LA around the time that the um, discussion was happening over uh, the new Johnny Depp film. Now, this is a film that was was pulled out and put to turn around until they could solve the budget and got it down from a whopping $250 million to a mere $215 million. Um, and I've got to say, a, a film at two hundred and fifteen million, and I, I believe the title is going to be The Lone Ranger, um, is uh, astonishing amount of money to me, isn't it? I mean, Matt, that's just like it does seem like a lot, doesn't it? When you think of some of the other movies that have been made kind of around that price bracket, even something like Titanic, that you just think, wow, that is a lot of money to be spending, and hopefully, it'll be a great movie and they'll get it back. But it does seem a lot compared with what has just been spent, obviously, on this movie. I mean, I have no problem with Titanic and, and the odd, you know, huge film. It's great. But by the same token, yeah. you know, if you could get seven Anonymouses, you'd have to have a pretty good film from the 215 million film to, you know... And, and the, the risk factor has got to be so much greater. I mean, the return on investment on a $30 million film has to be so much easier to hit. I don't know. Or is it that you need so much marketing budget to get a film in the consciousness of an audience that it's hard to get a $30 million film noticed? I mean, I don't know. Um, hmm. I mean, this one was going to be a tough sell, right? Because it's, it is lit nerdery and period films are, you know, they cater to niche audiences. So I think that $30 million number, again, just to maybe close the book on this so we can just talk about the effects... That's a number that is recoupable with anything but an absolute flop. I mean, assuming you can get it distributed worldwide, you know, and you can get it into all the ancillary markets, that's a number that you can hit. And this film really, I don't think it's even there yet. Like, I don't think enough people made it into the cinemas to see it yet. But I, I, I think it's going to get there. Well, I mean, the demographic that's going isn't uh, 16-year-old boys that are going to go on the opening Thursday night and camp outside <laughs> the, you know, hey, we're in the queue to see Anonymous. Um, right, it's going to do really well in the in the rental market. Yeah, and my mum would go and see it and she'd hear about it and it would take her a week or two to get around to going to the cinema and she'd love <laughs> it to death. Um, the thing is, I, I think the film, um, the visual effects in the film are... Really good because they not only, you know, provide us with a bunch of stuff that allowed the film to get made, but they just genuinely provided some good, breathtaking images of, of England. Didn't feel like it was, um, 
too stage constrained because the only way you could really do this was either to have it feel like a very sort of like a play film play kind of thing which i think would have been a totally different way to go or you need to make it not feel like you're in a you can't look down that you know that uh alleyway because obviously you could run out of set there and we, you know it sort of would have felt horrible to not have the grandeur uh because it involved the queen and the palace and the court and everything else and you know they did it they they gave you some really good epic shots but they probably gave you just enough just like the bare minimum of what they could afford there's like about 300 shots big sort of shots in this film and and i guess of those um you know there's there's a good handful of just uh sensible trailer wide epic sweeping shots um and some original ones i mean Mark, that shot of London uh, for the funeral procession uh, along the Thames, I know it's um, very, uh, you know, fanciful that that you would actually have it going straight down the middle of the Thames, but at the same token, it's just a killer shot. Yeah, it's the signature shot of the movie, and it definitely looks like a shot from a Roland Emmerich film. I was kind of amused. We we had this joke on Day After Tomorrow. Uh, In fact, we had two shirts printed up that just said Daca Blua on them, because that was constantly the, the direction we got, and you know there was i mean that that shot uh, other than the fact that it had the tower bridge in it color wise would have fit into uh, a couple other emmerich films but more importantly that and maybe a couple of the other flying sh- you know the shot over the globe um the one of the tower bridge that gave you a big film in a very really i mean i i hate to say this to the people who spent a year working on those shots but you know in an economical way <laughs> yeah. I mean, a very, very efficient way. Oh, yeah. It was, it was the... Look, it, you know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with the establishing wide shot that really gets the audience placed contextually and then go in for the drama and, and uh, the close-ups for the performance. I mean, that is filmmaking, and it's there for a reason. And I've got to tell you, the other thing is it allowed them to mirror the seasons as the emotional arc of the film went. So we really had this kind of lush um, early part of the film with warm colors and uh you know where there was hope and and then by that scene that you, you you're joking about it really was monochrome right i mean it was like black and white with the blacks crushed mm-hmm. and I yeah think- i mean there actually the, we could talk about the color work on this film too which i also thought was really great well i, I think we should because i think it really um it really played well i mean the um there is um a somewhat of a obviously it's somewhat stylized but it's not stylized to the point that it just seemed odd to me i mean I, they got a lot of it in camera but i didn't think that there's only one scene that i didn't like the grade on do you want to guess what it was <laughs> i'm i'm drawing a blank matt yeah me, me yeah i'm i'm thinking back through everything and okay so i'll say no, it i'd see if it ahead. see if it, it had the same problem that that for you that it had for me everything was working really well and then they had the shot of the tennis match and the tennis match suddenly looked like we hit a commercial and somebody had gone and played with the colors um <laughs> so that the indoor tennis match uh was incredibly brown and uh the tones just looked to me decidedly like a tvc like a commercial and no longer like it had gone over the edge across the line into um a, uh, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that like there are tons of films that i love um from seven onwards that have like looks but that was a look look scene but that didn't bug you guys no actually it didn't Matt, no, did you no I, I didn't remember it standing out um no i'm just looking back through my notes at what i wrote down but no that didn't 
spring to mind as looking looking unusual. Um, what's interesting with that shot, though, only slightly changing the subject, is what I didn't realise was that that tennis ball was all CG, <laughs> and uh, it was it was all done in comp, which I thought was quite interesting when I found out. But sorry, we diverge. <laughs> no, no, it's it's a good point. In fact, most of this was comped in uh, in Fusion. Yeah. Okay. Now you guys yeah. have to. You guys have to help me out with this. So, in the interview I did with um, uh, the guys at Uncharted Territory, we started discussing uh, deep compositing. And apparently, I, um, I walked into a, a landmine, which I didn't even realize until somebody uh, texted me or emailed me on a forum uh, called uh, Pigs Fly from it's a Fusion Forum. And the thing is, I understood that they used deep compositing on the film, and I asked people, did they use deep compositing? They all said yes. But apparently Fusion's version of deep compositing is different than the Weta. Okay, Matt, so you understand this, Matt? Can you explain it to me? I think so. I think so. Um, So the the Weta deep compositing is is something that we're probably all familiar with. It's kind of becoming a a standard, right, for for being able to lay things in without the problems of anti-aliasing. What it looks like they've done uh, with this is there's lots of talk around uh, this to do with the world position pass. Yes. And that that pass, from what I've gathered, seems to be a point pass or a position pass that you would get out of a 3D renderer. And they've been able to get that out of V-Ray or they can make it directly out of the uh, renderer that that Fusion has for its 3D system. But it's basically creating a a point pass, the kind of thing people may have seen if they'd seen any of the work that was done in District 9 when they took a a renderer and remade it kind of in 3D as a point cloud. So they've used that, um, that kind of 3D pass along with a volume fog and I think a volume mask tool, which has really given them this kind of as they call it, the deep compositing flexibility. But it, from what I've read, it definitely seems to be slightly different to what we've seen come out of Animal or out of uh, Weta. Okay, so let me see if I've got this right. So they do a, a volumetric kind of tool set thing, and that volumetric tool set thing lets them work with things like lighting and uh, presumably other stuff. But it's not as if you are rendering a single pass of smoke that has multiple depths in per pixel. Is that right? No, it doesn't have that kind of multiple samples back through through the Z, no. Yet slightly confusingly, it's called quite often what did you what did you say it was there's a because the the fusion guys have a a The um, fusion guys call it the the um the WPP or the world position pass. Right. And it's kind of like a their custom pass, but that name is also used in V-Ray if if people are familiar with V-Ray that will also output a world position pass. Um, and I think Mental Ray and Renderman will call it just a position pass. Okay, so so the deep image compositing uh, is going to work with the WPP pass, but it's different or that, that you just can't support deep compositing, as in deep image compositing, inside Fusion? It sounds like... Fusion at the moment won't, and I may be totally wrong on this, I hope I don't get hate mail, but it sounds like Fusion at the moment won't take the the uh, D-Tech, Deep Image um, texture files in. It sounds like it has its own flavor, which is based off of this okay, kind of point position pass. Because obviously we're talking about Fusion 6.3, and, and over in Nuke, which is obviously your territory, that Deep Image Compositing, which we referred to on this podcast for... Um, for Planet of the Apes and stuff, uh, or Rise of the Return of the Planet of the Apes, um, that's 
new to Nuke and now is is really supported in Nuke, isn't it? Yes, yeah, that's uh, fully supported now. Is it supported in Nuke as both a color and as a as a sort of a black and white map version? Because there's two ways you can implement it, right? One is that it varies depth based, uh, on, you know, down the line of the pixel, but also you could not only give it that, but you could say that this pixel varies in color as it goes down different depths along this part of the line. Do you know? I'm I'm not sure. I think it probably does. Um, from what I've seen in playing with it with Nuke, uh, the the pixel that you sample will have depth information and also a color information associated with it. And I think the deeper you go into that, the more that color may change in its opacity or other or other um, kind of styles. Right. Okay, well, thanks for clearing that up. And if you are somebody that understands that difference between the Fusion implementation, um, which seems to be, of course, completely valid, and what is now being supported in Nuke, um, please uh, jump right in and uh, send us an email because we'd love to hear more about it. I mean, obviously, what we try and do is, uh, you know, kind of explore these techniques. And certainly, um, this area of having much more depth understanding is critical to getting a film like this made. And if we just move away for a second for this one particular problem of the the deep image compositing, uh, one of the things that they used in this, for example, was just having an understanding of real-world coordinates for even putting smoke on chimneys. You could literally, they had a tool at uh, Uncharted Territory, you could just mark chimney pots on top of a uh, an environment where you wanted smoke to come and it would sort of automatically produce little um, puffs of smoke coming out of that in uh, in 3D space. And it was, of course, very important for these moving shots that it is in 3D space. And that that's a, a point that I wanted to um, expand on a little because in a couple of discussions I've had recently, there's this idea that there is a disintegration of the line between 3D and 2D because of this um, because of this idea that we need so much 3D information in compositing and, and quite frankly, um, you know, a good way to tackle a lot of problems is to have that understanding from a 3D point of view and from a 2D point of view in the old school. Um, Mark, do you agree with that? Do you think that that line is just really going to go away or are we just in a phase at the moment where the pendulum's swinging back a bit one way rather than before it'll come back again? It seems pretty clear from what I can gather that this is one more piece and it makes sense to me that was again, just essential to getting this movie done the way that they did it. And what it literally does is reduce the amount of time and effort spent getting a shot done because you don't have to send changes back through the pipeline. It's just as simple as that. So by bringing those, the smoke chimneys, another one they were doing in fusion was water surfaces, which really surprised me uh, that, that they were doing that in Fusion. But I think they... I mean, in the case of Fusion, I think they had a kind of a special connection to Ion. And um, at least one TD who really knows his way around Fusion really well, uh, Robert Zeich. So uh, all that being said, those those are two big items that uh, could be tweaked with, you know, even the director sitting there over shoulder and uh, apparently re-rendered during the review so that by the end of a 20 minute review you could go well okay i made those adjustments and now here you go (laughs) and so i think that way of working is the direction things are and should be going and i mean uh so to the extent that it's possible i i i mean that that benefits pretty much everyone uh unless somebody's making an hourly wage (laughs) re-rendering right (laughs) right um, this 
in the in the sort of the start of this uh, sort of digital environment game, we used to have things that we used to say look gamey, like they used to look like they're sort of game engineer-ish. Um, and that was a derogatory term. I guess it shouldn't be, but it was. And I think we've passed that pretty comfortably. We're not thinking that any of these shots in here are looking like they're um, from a you know computer game. But, of course, their target that they're hitting is this clean image that's coming out of the Alexa. It's very sharp. It's very clean. It's not got a lot of um, artifacts that we would be used to. from. And yet this film, I would say, is a very cinematic experience, very filmic. D- do you agree with the... I guess the assertion that I started the show with that the target of what makes something cinematic is no longer the same target that you might describe as being very filmic. Those two have shifted and that, and they're probably just shifted for an entire generation who just doesn't give a rat's ass anymore about weave and float and film grain and all the things that we used to really fuss with. I mean, Mark, do you think that, that there's now a really big difference between something that's filmic and something that's cinematic? <laughs> no, not at all. I, I, in other words, I do completely agree. And I, I do, I mean, I've been doing this show long enough that it's recent memory that we would legitimately on the show look at a given film and say, or I should say movie in this context, and say, hey, you know, did you notice that was shot in the red? Did you think about, you know, whatever camera captured this? And here's a, here's a case where I think the output, I mean, to, to begin with, the Alexa is a very filmic digital camera and they by outputting to a codex with a with a log curve they were generating a type of file that is really similar to what you'd take off of a film camera um i I don't think i'm saying anything inaccurate just putting it that simply yeah i mean you could i think you could argue that the that the printed densities of a Cineon scan are different than the log yeah. characteristics. But I think, yeah. I think you're right. If any no, I, digital camera yeah. has a filmic kind of historical DNA, it's the Alexa. Yeah, I'm not saying the Alexa necessarily has the latitude of film, but they didn't really put that to the test here. What they did was push and pull on things that would have broken more easily in the past. I mean, there's so much going on in the blacks in this film, and and the color really is so bled out of a lot of these shots, but in a just gorgeous way. I mean, you can't confidently bleed that much color out of a shot and have it hold up unless, you know, it's there to begin with, in my experience. Mm. So um, that is really, a, a, you know... I. So that that had me thinking about a whole different set of aesthetics than the ones we're talking about here, which have a lot more to do with, you know, were the highlights blown out? Were the blacks flat and milky, etc.? Uh, did it seem like they were playing it safe with the dynamic range? And, and none of that really seemed... Like, none of that entered my kind of awareness watching this film. I mean, some of these were shot at ISO... 1200 uh, and that's sort of the upper range of something what I'm comfortable with unlike these things around 800 and and they were down at 28 um, so wide open on the master primes and and I guess my thing my assertion is that if you get really good sharp clean images with a lot of range like that and you have a good pipeline which I think Uncharted undoubtedly does it actually kind of makes it easier to meld the CG with the live action because notwithstanding things like lens curvature and stuff um, you're, you're hitting a nice clean image, but you're generating a nice clean image, and it feels like we've met a little in the middle. And that aesthetic, because I mean, this film, 
is gorgeous. But if you were to watch right after it, a film made by an independent filmmaker from just a few years ago on a $30 million budget, it would be so much grainier. I mean, it would be soft to my eye. It, it's almost like hard to sort of believe that we thought that looked good. It, it's <laughs> really kind of lifted the bar, but also that it kind of helps blend the CG in. What do you think, Matt? Yeah, I agree. No, definitely. It's it's interesting how um, things have changed over time and, and just the styles. I mean, this has got, as both of you have said, it's got quite a, a, a kind of a real crisp look, but it's also stylized and painty at the same time. So it it seems to me that the live action just fits in perfectly with, with the surroundings that it's molding with. So yeah, I really, I really like the look and I don't feel... Um, taken out of it in any way that it doesn't look like something I would have been more familiar with a few years ago. Hey, um, I want to get your opinion on a sh- the scene that I thought was one uh, of the most successful from just a straight uh, green screen point of view. Um, at Near the end of the film, I'm not going to give the plot away now, but this is boarding on um, uh, a spoiler, but I'm going to try and do this without spoiling the film. There's a scene near the end of the film where a large number of horses end up in a courtyard and there is a battle with gunfire. Okay, so you don't need to know who is it if you haven't seen the film, but suffice it to say that if you have seen the film, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a very pivotal point in the film. Now, in this scene, you've got a bunch of horses riding in and riders and stuff. They go, they go in what they think is going to be just passing through a courtyard into, um, into like a castle, and then the door gets closed behind them, and it's basically like they're ambushed on multiple sides from high up by the, um, the other guys. Let's just call them that. Okay, so that's all you need to know plot-wise. I'm not going to ruin the story. But that set, which I was looking at intently because it's a very key part in the film, was shot with a bunch of dirt on the ground and basically three walls of green. And I'd love, Mark, to know what you thought of that. Did you pick it like that? Did you think that the king was good? I mean, what, what did you think? Yeah, I had... I, again, I'm going to go back to saying this really is the right way to do it if you're going to do it on this budget and put it in that scene. Because, no, I was not... My technical, you know... Uh, trigger didn't get pulled at all really on that i i i mean i no, i was drawn into the film and i was aware that that's probably how they did it in that in that scene and and you know some of the others uh that had a helpful say hedge in the foreground and then some grandiose mansion in the background i um <laughs> I'm trying to think of a kind of a smarter way to um, break this down, but but honestly, I mean, the simple answer to your question is no. I, I was right there in that whole sequence, and um, uh, in my experience, that that's the right way to to do it. It even gives the actors something they can kind of you know ground themselves in, literally. <laughs> yeah, because they've got. They've got guys up high shooting at them. They're they're real horses and everyone's jumping around. But the environment, the walls, the fort, if you like, the entire um, castle that that is the fortifications all get replaced. Now, we've seen that done badly. And and I will go so far as to say this is, I think, the best fusion comped film fusion's ever been involved with. So I'm not referring to any of that. But in other completely separate things, 
Uh, we've seen this done badly, and you pick it because the depth of field is wrong, uh, the the tracking's a little off. They've kind of muddied the picture up to get away with stuff. So the even the rack defocus is more of just a blur, and it's it, it, the illuminance levels aren't quite matching, and the guy in the foreground looks kind of wrong. I think they got around a couple of those problems by shooting effectively exterior. Um, so you had natural light. You weren't trying to shoot one green screen and just and then just sort of move the lights around to imply it from a different angle, like it was a proper sort of basically four-walled kind of big courtyard that just was built with scaffolding and green. Uh, but that being said, that you can't give all the credit to just doing it that way because there was still gunfire, bits of smoke, dirt being kicked up, uh, motion blur action. It wasn't as if this was just a really clean, simple uh, key to pull. And so I'm going to give us you know more credit to the artists involved because... Uh, Matt, that that was a pretty seamless friggin' effort for what was a vast amount of green screen for that scene. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, because I, I got a chance to see it twice, uh, I went in looking at that specific shot that we're talking about, and I was looking at how the light wrap was working, how the edge blowing was working, and it, as you said, it, it was just done really well. And I think one of the things that helped it was, from my understanding, the the backgrounds that were obviously CG they took a huge number of photos um, that they then used as textures. So I think somewhere I either heard or read that they didn't really paint any textures for any of the buildings or any of the environments. They were all based off of some kind of real photographic material that they had taken somewhere. So I think all of that, because it was all real in one sense or another, really helped to tie everything in. Yeah. Was there anything in the film that, I mean, because I, I, I sort of would say that obviously the big epic wide shots are the sort of the trailer shots, but they're, you know, they're they're great. But <laughs> these close-up uh, kind of action sequences with bits of smoke and everything else really could have fallen over. They could have been the uh, the bad comp outside the window in the driving shot um, <laughs> that we always joke about, and they weren't. They were just great. But was there anything in the film that you thought on a second viewing, you know, maybe wasn't that good or, or you know, because obviously probably couldn't be perfect but was there anything that caught your there eye was any there was only one shot that seemed odd to me and i i thought about it afterwards and, and decided that it may have been um just a focus issue but there's a shot where um i think it's the earl of oxford goes and i may be wrong on on who it was he goes and he meets his son for the first time who's with um, another guy doing some sword practice fighting when he's a young boy do you yep. remember the, yep. that shot? And there was um, a sequence where you were basically looking from the boy's point of view and then looking from the father's point of view. And as it switched back and forth, the, the, the depth of field or something just didn't feel right in that situation. I, I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was, but that was the only shot probably in most of the film that really took me out of it. And I just thought, what is, what's going on here? Hmm. That's the only thing I could kind of think of. Well, as I said, I didn't like the tennis uh, scene, but that was more a grading issue. What about you, Mark? Uh, I'm going to take it the other direction and say to anybody who hasn't seen the film yet, when you watch it, be aware of the fact that there was not a single uh, boat or building on water that they shot. <laughs> 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 and I love the fact that... Um, the the way they did the boats it's like one of the earliest vfx projects i ever did uh, they literally put them on big uh we did it with inner tubes i think they did other inflatable objects but and had grips bounce them around so uh 
I actually would take it the other direction to say they they got away with stuff that, you know, I would have said... I, I think they got away with stuff that you would have associated with a low-budget film, and the way they did it was through attention to detail. There's, a, there's intense attention to detail. So to say that they did it on a low budget, um, you know, by economizing to 300 shots and so on, doesn't do it full justice until you think about the fact that they did go to all that trouble to do all that photogrammetry and all that visual research and come up with enough varieties of buildings and trees and, you know, and, and really pay uh, a lot of attention to that and, and kind of maybe obsessive. Uh, I think, uh, you know, somebody even acknowledged in, in what I was reading that it was maybe even a little much. Um, so I, I know this is not exactly what you were asking me for, but I, I think it's kind of funny. Like if I were doing this film, I would question whether, for example, you really needed to animate, uh, do, do cloth simulations for characters that end up uh, four pixels high on that grand river shot. But apparently they noticed the difference. And in fact, having done massive shots before and having swatted, you know, problems that are simpler, like, Oh, that guy's walking like Frankenstein or so on. I kind of buy it, (laughs) but anyway, um, I don't know, Mike, would you go to the trouble to do a class simulation for a massive character that was going to end up uh, being no bigger than four pixels? On screen? Yeah, look, it's a really great question. I mean, obviously, I, I hope that I would, though I, I think I may not. Um, but I, I would have said, and I think I might have even gone down this line of questioning when I was talking to um, either Mark or Volker in the FX Guy TV, the, the thing that uh, Massive introduced a couple of versions ago was an interaction between the agents and the surfaces. So a good example would be someone walking on sand, leaving sand footprints. And I was looking for that, uh, in the massive sims with the snow. Um, so I guess I would have rightly or wrongly gone for trying to... Because my problem with massive sims, and I, and I love the guys at Massive in New Zealand, they're just awesome, but it does tend to feel sometimes like the characters are floating a bit and they're not... It's not that they're not grounded, but you know the way character animators give such weight to characters, you don't get that necessarily from the agents in the sims. And one of the good ways to position them and really anchor them to the ground is uh, footprints and stuff that gets happening as a sort of a secondary uh, byproduct of the primary agent animation. So, Mark, to do to do back to you what you've been doing to me all show, which is to not answer your question directly, um, that's <laughs> what I would have in the pre-pro meeting. Uh, and I, I quite frankly love doing this, just thinking how would I have done it if I'd been and in the meeting. I would have focused on that to anchor those um, uh, those agents down. And I don't think that they floated in the... Sims that we saw, especially not the Sims um, off the snow, but nevertheless, that would have been uh, my uh, my attention to detail. I, I I think the cloth sim thing is probably one of those things that uh, if somebody showed me a before and after, I'd probably go, okay, yeah, now you now you mention it, that's better. Um, now that's probably the level you need to be at. And I think the other thing that we haven't touched on yet, but it's kind of important, and I think it was Volker who said this. Um, they have such a good relationship with the director that he could literally be on set and they'd say, okay, we, we've got a tight budget here. I want to do four more shots over here. And they go, okay, sure. Where do you want to lose four shots from? And he'd be like, okay, uh, let's do two shots and then I will lose two because they were that disciplined about it um, rather than just sort of, you know, fix it in post. They were sitting there on set saying, 
okay, if we want to make this, you know, have a bit more oomph, we're going to have to take it from somewhere else and balancing that out. Now, that can be a nasty thing, but I'm a big believer that that level of discipline is what is what produces great stuff. To use a super hackneyed cliche, it's that pressure that produces diamonds. If you can really get some constraints on a production on set with the director, they're kind of like focused and it isn't just a matter of do anything and everything, then you do pick your battles much better. You do on set make an effort to get it right and I think that just feeds the entire production. Um, I think Roland Emmerich has sort of rewritten his directorial place in the wiki history books for this film because it is so unlike those other films but you know if you didn't have it as the same director and know that it would be almost impossible to look at 2012 and then this and think it's the same guy yeah i agree i agree it's and it when you watch it there doesn't feel like there's an ounce of fat on this movie everything feels like it's been thought about every shot fits in with the story fits in tells a story on its own and i think yeah as you as you've said, just having such a, a tight rein on the story and a tight rein on every single shot and not just kind of shooting the heck out of it has really helped this movie. Hey, um, I've got a question. Mark, I explored this a bit with uh, Anna in terms of framing and blocking, but I really love your eyes. So tell me, what did you think of the blocking and framing of the full effect shots, these these bigger shots? Because I mentioned that in, in the podcast to her that I liked how she'd gone wider but closer in, having some negative space. She wasn't just going long lens, shallow depth of field. And we, we discussed that. But she obviously didn't lens in the same way the, the other shots. And just from your both experience and I just really like your your eye. What did you think of the actual blocking and fla- framing on these effect shots? Are, are you talking about the ground level ones or the, the aerial? Oh, well, both. When, when, it's not, when it's not derived from the principal photography. In other words, there are shots that obviously are completely derived from, you know, there's a hole there where you have to put in a, a bit of fort because he's standing on something. You need to, you know, that's decided by the DOP. Uh, very much so but obviously a bunch of other shots there were digital environments and i was just um because you alluded right. to it a little earlier with the the swooping down they were very roland emmerich shots in your opinion yeah i think those shots were were meant to be grand and and uh, boy I, I watched them and i thought you know here's somebody demanding let's get the money on the screen and so when i read later on also about how careful they were about uh, when it was um a shot of, of um, uh, what are, I think Whitehall is the right, is that? Could be, yeah. The right, yeah. And uh, also just the streets of London. I mean, they, they took a lot of trouble to find out what those look like and present them as were, which, which isn't an atypical thing to do. And then they took liberty to go ahead and change them if it was, you know, if it was, I mean, particularly the house of these guys, um, Emmerich wanted them to be you know quite grand and i you know in in each case i i just looked at it that um i i think the framing then from a story point of view allowed that to work pretty well i mean um uh, uh, it didn't seem pedantic to have that level of detail and i wasn't i wasn't really aware of it but i i think that uh i authenticity also has some validity uh in that whole exercise. So I guess that throws it back to you, Matt, as our stout Englishman. Um, did it feel like home? <laughs> did it feel like England? I mean, because as an Australian, it looked like it was English. Did it feel English? 
Did it look? It did. Obviously, obviously, quite a lot has changed since the, yeah, yeah. the Great Fire of London. Um, but I think the fact that a lot of the shots were framed with the Thames in it really made you feel like uh, if there's a big city with a river running through it that looks like this, it is London. And then the fact that they focused in on things like the Tower of London and, and things like that, the bridges, it did pretty quickly, as I kind of get to see them quite often, give you a, a really good sense as to roughly where you are, even though obviously the lay of the land has changed quite dramatically over those you know 400 years or so. Um, it did seem like London and it did feel um, like you kind of knew where you were in those shots. I've got to say, I think I also did like a number of other attention to detail things. And as uh, Mark was speaking, then it just popped into my mind. One of those was the Queen's blackened teeth. You know, there was a few things in there that gave it a kind of uh, curiously interesting historical authenticity. You know, who knows if anything's right or wrong, especially as, as I'm sort of not a a student of history per se, but, you know, little things like that all the way through that you kind of looked at and went, oh, her teeth look weird. Well, of course they look weird because it's pre-dentistry, you know. Um, and the costumes. I mean, I just thought it was uh, great costuming and great, you know. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a period drama because of the fact that you get all these great costumes, great outfits, yeah, great locations. Yeah. yeah, indeed. I have to say, too, when I think of taking that, you know, putting that much attention to detail in giant map paintings or, or did you match shots? I think of David Fincher and they one upped him. I mean, talking about detail, they, they got their cold breath completely right. And I found out they did a <laughs> whole system for it. So, I mean, to close the loop on our social network, little hobby horse that we rode around about that. Um, the, the, the answer is not necessarily to just, uh, put on a black mask and smoke a cigarette. There's actually, uh, there are good digital solutions and you should probably check out the Cinefix coverage of this to get their their recipe because it worked pretty well, um, and they actually just just to follow up on that a little bit, they even uh, analyzed the audio so that they knew when the character would be breathing <laughs> in between speaking, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, I think um, you know if there's a takeout from this, surely it's that you can do insanely great work on a good budget if you have cooperation with the, the director, a really experienced team with a great eye, time to do it, and then you you know, you know have an attention to detail. And I think if this had been 800 shots and not quite as good, it would have fallen flat. 300 shots done superbly well with everything up on the screen. I mean, it just makes for a good film. And, you know, it's, it's uh, technically really superb. I mean, I, I, even if you sort of, I don't know, I got the impression... Matt, there was some hostility in England, especially from the uh, popular press critique, um, you know, guys who do the movie reviews over this sort of attacking the the, <laughs> the sacred ground of Shakespeare. But even if you don't buy into that, it just is a really good technical exercise in good filmmaking. And, uh, and we should try and hope to see that transplanted on because, uh, you know, there's nothing here that couldn't be done by somebody else or couldn't be done again no definitely and i, I was really surprised to to read that that what they originally started that the the kind of the cg comp team started out with just five artists back in kind of november 2009 and at its peak at the last three months was only something like 29 or 30 artists working on these shots um so it for such a small team i think they've done 
amazingly well. And I think they came up with some really clever ideas. I mean, Mark was talking earlier about the speed in which they could turn stuff around um, when they were reviewing it with the uh, with the director. And they did some really clever things that, that I hadn't seen done. I, it probably has been done before, but things like they rendered out um, out of uh, 3D Studio Max, 3DS Max, um, just a single frame of uh, of some buildings and then they exported that geometry back into fusion and then projected the rendered textures back onto that and then did all the camera moves and animation inside of fusion and therefore you've obviously got a much quicker renderer than you would if you would let it run out through v-ray and i think that kind of um, ability to to come at it from a different direction has really helped in not only the speed but the flexibility that you may not have had on a more traditional i'm going to do this in in uh, Maya or Houdini or however you would be doing it normally. Yeah, I was disappointed that the next film these guys are on has been put in turnaround um, because I was, and obviously they will do another big film, but they were going into another big budget film and uh, and I thought, well, wow, if this team has done this on this budget and then they go back to a bigger budget film, I wonder whether we'd see like, you know, because it's quite a good thing for an actor sometimes to go back and do some theatre work and then go back to film because it's kind of re-energising their, uh, their acting skills. And not that these guys need to re-energise their VFX skills, but I wondered whether there was going to be some stuff carried forward from this sort of um, laser surgery type approach back to the bigger budget films where you can afford to do things 15 ways from Sunday and, and throw stuff out. So hopefully uh, that film that's now in turnaround will get um, will get back on the track and greenlit and uh, we'll see what they're doing again um look i'm going to wind up the show there because we're a little tight on time um i've really enjoyed uh talking to you guys um mark what are you up to and where could people um uh follow you uh well i i've been a I, it's time for me to get tweeting again uh so uh check out flow seeker on twitter i will uh, i'll post some updates there and uh keep you apprised i've been rather busy Yes, and I know you've got some really cool things coming down the pipe. So whenever you can talk about those, please yeah. um, just know that I'm sitting here begging to talk to you. Um, Excellent. <laughs> and uh, Matt? Uh, again, the same as Mark. I'm on the uh, on the Twitters, so uh, you can find me as Matt D. Leonard. And uh, hopefully I will be in one place for a while because it certainly feels like I've been here then everywhere for a few months. And, of course, you'll find me over at uh, FX Guide and FX PhD. Um, the 125, FX Guide TV 125 is the anonymous uh, one where you can see the breakdowns of the shots. Uh, and in Red Centre 101, you'll hear the discussion with the uh, uh, director of photography. Um, thanks so much. We really enjoyed the show. And uh, as they say in the uh, trailer, we've all been played. Thanks so much. See you. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright 2012, FX Guide, LLC.